Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, you can email the programme, Patricia, at c103.ie. And I was going through the papers uh, this morning and just thinking, what does it say about our health service when we hear that a cancer class divide is leaving some groups more likely to be only diagnosed when they present at a hospital's emergency department and when they present they present with advanced disease and this is all coming out from a report that's out which is warning that people from lower income and lower socioeconomic groups are overly represented among those who turn up at an A&E department with later cancer symptoms and they're also on waiting lists then for specialist services. The gap is outlined in a report that's been uh, compiled by TASC and TASC is the independent economic and social think tank. It says that the differences in economic and social circumstances determine the impact of cancer for many patients and it includes both the incidence of cancer and the outcome of certain types of cancer. Social inequality, it says, affects patients all the way from pre-diagnosis to post-treatment. Uh, now, what they did was they uh, did a number of interviews with healthcare professionals. They spoke with community health workers. They obviously spoke with oncology experts. And then they went with representatives of charity organisations. And I imagine uh, groups like the Irish Cancer Society would have been uh, interviewed. Uh, they highlighted various barriers, including delays in accessing primary care services. They're saying what happened there, and what continues to happen now, there are few Fewer GPs, but particularly fewer GPs in deprived uh, areas. And because of that, there's delays in people, even if they are they have symptoms, they might have discovered a lump, a bump, something they're worried about something. But because there isn't a GP or they can't get into, into a GP in their in their area or they haven't been able to sign up to a GP, the symptom is being ignored through really no fault um, sometimes in the patient's case no fault of their own and then by the time that cancer gets so advanced that they have to go for help they end up at an A&E department and of course at that stage they're possibly with stage 4 cancer with little or nothing being available for them uh, 
help available for them. Uh, they also say, uh, also the experts that they spoke to say direct and indirect financial costs also come into it. Things that you wouldn't think of like uh, transport and loss of income. You'll have some people fearful of going forward because they say, well, if I go forward and I end up being out sick from work for a period of time there's going to be no income coming into the house the income is all, the household is already struggling so for that reason they'll put off even going to get a diagnosis the first wait they say can be weeks or months that's just getting to see the g the gp particularly as they say in deprived uh, areas and then they say they identified less obvious reasons and said disadvantaged parents experienced psychological barriers to accessing service things like self-blame and stigma which may be worse by health lifestyle public message imaging and the legitimate fear of the financial cost of becoming a cancer patient and that kind of saddened me when I when I was thinking about that about people blaming themselves and the stigma I mean the obvious one there would be people who are smokers for example and we all know that smoking is bad for you and the constant public health messaging around smoking and people being told one out of two smokers will get cancer so if somebody is smoking and is developing symptoms of what possibly could be cancer they're going to think start blaming themselves well, I shouldn't have been smoking I should have, should have given up there's the stigma attached to it do I really want to go in and face an expert who'll say oh it's your own fault that you were smoking and that's stopping people going uh, forward there's also extra pressure such as ambulance and emergency department fees for people this is obviously people who don't have a medical card or don't have uh, health insurance and this report is saying that that can actually act as a deter- deterrent if somebody knows that by going to the emergency department they're going to be charged whatever it is uh, 100 euro if they call it an ambulance is going to be a charge attached to it if they're already struggling with the cost of living as we know so many people are they're going to stop and think I'm not going to pick up the phone I'm not going to ring the ambulance I'm not going to go to the emergency uh, department so this report now is calling for targeted investment to reach those most at risk it includes greater capacity in primary care particularly in deprived area they also want investment in localised and community facing services aimed again at disadvantaged and the marginalised groups they want expansion of cancer prevention and early diagnosis intervention including a new approach to the promotion of healthier lifestyle and access to immunities by disadvantaged groups particularly during post-treatment recovery the report says policymakers need to address how inequality for disadvantaged patients creates financial psychological and self-related barriers across the whole cancer journey. From the data collected in the study, tasks say it's clear that major challenges appear long before the point at which a person receives an official diagnosis of cancer. Now, a theme emerging from the findings of the report was how psychological responses to cancer, such as fear, the shame that we spoke about and fatalism. Oh, if I get cancer, I'm going to be dead. That all led to avoidance behaviours when it comes to ignoring or checking disease symptoms. And the director of TASC, uh, Shauna Cohen, said the report highlights a plethora of crisscrossing gaps and deficiencies that makes cancer a much more devastating disease for less well-off individuals and communities. And that's a real, real sad reflection on our society, isn't it? That how you how your cancer treatment from your diagnosis through to your treatment 
is going to be better for families that can afford rather for families that are less well off. They're calling for better links between hospitals, community services and support groups. And among the report's recommendations is to set up some kind of a socio-economic task force to gain a deeper understanding of the challenges and to create rapid access clinics in deprived areas to improve early diagnosis. And I don't know if I've ever seen a report that has really laid it out like that on the inequality that's affecting people right from from pre-diagnosis to diagnosis right through to the treatment and to post-treatment. Uh, so, you know, these reports are great and they'll make the headlines. And then there's always the fear that we have these reports and then they'll be shelved away and nothing will be done about it. And there'll be another report in so many years time and somebody will remember seeing a report from task and dig that one out and say oh yeah that was mentioned back in uh, 2022 so let's hope that that isn't the case with this but I really do think uh, it's a sad reflection on society but what does it really say about our health service a health service that we seem to pour billions upon billions of euro into every single year and I don't know what it is but we just do not seem to be able to get it right but when it comes to cancer treatment I would say every single time I have done an interview on anything to do with cancer but in particular when I'm speaking with the experts different oncologists or or when I'm speaking with people like the Irish Cancer Society that I mentioned earlier they will all say that you don't ignore the symptoms that the you get in you get your diagnosis how important early diagnosis is we know and there will be people listening to this programme today who are cancer survivors who would have had cancer many many years ago and if you if if I was to ask any of them to ring in and tell their story, many of them will talk about how lucky they were to get an early diagnosis. They went in if they had a lump or a bump or they had some kind of a symptom or a doctor maybe picked up on a symptom when they were in for a regular checkup with the GP and they went forward. They got the treatment. In some cases, it was surgery. In some cases, it might have been chemo. It might have been radiation, but they got their treatment many, many years later they can talk about a cancer diagnosis that that happened many, as I say, many years later because years ago, it was the dreaded C word. We, did, we didn't even want to mention cancer. We spoke about it as the dreaded C. People were fearful of ever getting a diagnosis of cancer and almost straight away you were planning your funeral once you, once you got a diagnosis. But thankfully, due to, you know, fantastic groups like Breakthrough Cancer Research, the amount of research that has gone in to cancer treatments and the success stories of for cancer patients is is phenomenal and they're wonderful stories and they're stories that we always love to celebrate and should be celebrated but the reason that we have those successful cancer stories is because of early diagnosis so it really really does sadden me to see a report that clearly in this country shows there is a class divide which is leaving some groups more likely to be only diagnosed with cancer and at some stage they'll be at end stage cancer by the time they're diagnosed and they'll only get diagnosed at that advanced stage when they end up in an A&E department and God knows when they get to the A&E department they could be left sitting on a chair or lying on a trolley for many hours or days before they even get seen before the process will even begin to get that diagnosis. Michael in Northcock is uh, picking up on my piece uh, there on that report uh, showing that people who come from lower 
uh, income groups are more likely to only be diagnosed with a ca- with cancer uh, at an advanced stage when they turn up to a hospital emergency department. And I'm just making the point, the amount of money that goes into uh, healthcare, but Michael is picking up on there's other money that could go into healthcare. And he says the government gave 42 million euro to horse racing Ireland. This is one of the richest industries in this country. Wouldn't that 42 million be better spent and perhaps invested in the cancer services that you're talking about, Patricia? Don't get me wrong, says Michael, I love horse racing, but does it really need to have that kind of investment from the Irish government with the betting industry involved making huge, huge profits every year out of horse racing? Surely they could contribute more to the racing industry. And Michael, I hate to to be the bearer of bad news, but it isn't just 42 million that the Irish government invested into horse racing. I have the official figure. The horse racing industry receives financial support from the state through the it's through the Horse and Greyhound Racing Fund. 72.8 million was allocated to support horse uh, racing. And where you're coming up with a figure of 42 and that was the figure that uh, made headlines I think over the weekend is 80% of the money that's allocated from the state goes directly to prize money and that's where the 42 million figure comes out of but the top figure that goes to the horse racing industry from the government is 72.8 million now there's loads of arguments as to why that's done uh, because you know while it sounds like an awful lot of money you have to look at the amount of money that the industry produces back into the state the figure that the industry say uh, well I don't think it was the industry themselves I think it was Deloitte brought out a report and they estimate that the industry produces more than 1.84 billion in total expenditure every year so the government will say it's money well spent because money comes back into the uh, exchequer but yes a lot of money that goes out particularly when it's applied to prize money because of course that prize money is divided up between uh, people who are extremely wealthy the majority of the prize funds will be going to multi-millionaire or can I even say billionaire uh, horse owners I know for last year the top four winners were J.P. McManus, Michael O'Leary, John Magner and uh, Michael Tabor and none of those are people that you would say are, are short of a few bob and all of their winnings by the way that 42 million that would have been divided amongst that top four and others that money is tax free and it's it's coming directly from the taxpayer but when it's given out as prize money the people that win it as prize money do not have to pay any taxes uh, on it I think that's the part that galled so many people 0818103103 let's lighten the mood a little bit because we're celebrating the fact that Christy Moore is coming back live to the marquee the date has been announced for Saturday the 19th of June. The tickets are going on sale this Thursday morning through Ticketmaster.ie at 9am and we have the very first of the Christy Moore tickets to give away here on the programme. We gave away our first pair yesterday, another pair to give away today. I'm playing a clip of a Christy Moore song it's the title of the song we will be looking for and we'll be looking for it later on I'll just play it for you now so you can get the song into your head and try to work out which Christy Moore track it is but don't text or WhatsApp as yet but this is today's song oh it was there but it's not oh gonna let me just the button wasn't pressed let me go again with that one here we go let me see. There's a Dutchman playing the mandolin, a German looking for Lemo Flynn, and there's 
That's one of my favourite Christy Moore tracks, I have to say. Okay, I will play that again a little bit later on and I'll tell you exactly when you can text or WhatsApp. But don't text until we open the text and WhatsApps because your entry won't go uh, in. And then we will leave the text message open for about 10 minutes is what we normally do. And we will select a winner who will be winning a pair of tickets to go to see Christy Moore live at the Marquee Saturday the 17th of June with tickets officially going on sale this Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now, the Dáil's powerful Public Accounts Committee, the PAC, is to grill on board Planola chiefs. Uh, uh, over one about over one million euro that has been paid to developers. Fianna Fáil Cork East Dáil Deputy James O'Connor, who's a member of the PAC, uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to you, James. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, and, uh, and you're welcome. Now, the planning body has been plagued with uh, controversies of late. Do you now believe it's no longer fit for purpose, James? I certainly do. I think it's a, not a secret to anybody out there that's on board Bernola has been the source of so many problems with regarding planning for the last number of years. And I'm very, very worried about the sustainability of the organisation, given the problems they have at the moment. Do you believe they've inhibited development in this country? I certainly do. You know, even if you look at our own area, there's been a number of strategic housing developments in Cork East that Unborpranola have oversight with. And they have unfortunately caused a number of problems there in relation to, I suppose, looking at the process of the relationship with Cork County Council, also looking with their with, with their relationship with, I suppose, developers for huge payments have been paid out as a failure of their ability to process planning 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 uh, projects as well. So, you know, it, it's quite clear from the outside looking in that Albert Planola have to deal effectively with the backlog that they have relating to the SHDs. So just to explain to people what SHDs are, that means strategic housing developments. These are major new housing estates that we're going to need if we're going to be able to deal with the housing backlog of this country. Um, what has happened is that Unborn Planola have been unable to tackle with the objections that have been coming into this. People who've been writing in to object to new housing developments and it's caused this huge administrative burden that's having knock-on consequences, not just for housing, but now for industrial development, also for new transportation projects. You know, I've, I've heard sources in Irish Radio telling me that they've been waiting for, for months and months for things that should only take a matter of weeks. So it looks from the outside that on board and all it seems to be collapsing in itself. Yeah, I mean, have, have you any idea or have you been given any explanation as to why the board takes so long to make decisions, particularly what you mentioned on the strategic housing developments? Well, if I was to give my own view on it, the wrong people were put into it. There's an awful lot of questions need to be answered about why people like Paul Hayes and, and why their current chairperson had to resign as well recently. I believe he had a degree in theology. You know, this is a planning board that has to deal with he has, huge... He has a degree in theology? And nothing so, wrong with the degrees the, in... The, in the, 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 chair. And, and what relevance has that got to planning? That's my point, you see. And, 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 and although there seems to be some very learned individuals who have a lot of experience from an academic point of view on the board of Andropanala, from the outside, it does look like they're very environmentally focused and not focused on, on, on the major crisis that we're dealing in this country with today, and that's housing. So we have a decision to make in Ireland. Do we want to deal with Andropanala, give them the additional taxpayers' money to put in additional resources, 
or do we want to strip it down and strip it apart? And there's a very serious conversation needs to be had there. And Patricia, a point I really do feel that needs to be made. I feel in this country that with each and every day that goes by, we're corroding more and more democratic power away. And the interesting thing that has to be said, if people don't like me, James O'Connor, they're entitled to go to the ballot box at the general election and vote me out of office. But there are people in these organisations that have failed and are failing, and they are accountable to nobody. And what's very, very warning is that they can be left there for 10 and 15 and 20 years in organisations like the, the Office of the Planning Regulator on Bortanola, Toshka, you know, looking at all of these independent state agencies or quangos, whatever you want to call them, that's been given devolved responsibility and it's been stripped away from democratically elected people all of the time. But the problem is that they're unremovable and they're untouchable. And but, that's but, something that should worry But we do need a planning board. I mean, it can't simply be a free-for-all. So it certainly can't. But what we've seen is that this independent regulatory body has now failed. Uh, and, and that's something that's causing huge, huge damage. And the opportunity cost of what I, I think one board plan have interrupted is if you look at Dublin, for example, there are huge uh, high-rise high developments that were planned in Dublin City for residential accommodation that have not been allowed to proceed because of the actions of Umbortanada. There has been huge uh, housing developments in Cork City that have been in some way curtailed or interrupted because of Umbortanada. Industrial development has been curtailed. Like, I have no doubt that we're going into a, a potential recession next year because of the you know issues in the tech sector, which we're very reliant on in Ireland. And I don't think we're in a position to be shutting down development because of administrative burdens within an organisation that, quite frankly, could be sorted out quite easily. And it is an emergency. It's something that mightn't, uh, you know, land on everyone's doorstep, you know, on a daily basis. But the knock-on consequences of this means that people's sons and daughters, that, they're, that themselves, if they're trying to buy a house, are not able to get one because they can't deal with the problems they have within the organisation quick enough. And that's mm. just not good enough. Yeah, and, and let's be honest, we have young people who are leaving this country and they're leaving this country because it's they want to own their own home. They can't buy a house in this country and they're deciding to emigrate. And it, it's another drain on, on particularly young, educated people that we need to stay in this country. It is. And, you know, I'm, I'm 25 years old now, Patricia, and it's, it's sad, you know, to say that what you're saying is correct. Uh, I see so many young people who are well-educated, have worked hard, and they want to go out and, and, and contribute to our society. But the cycle, as we know, is that many of the companies now that would offer graduate programs are based in Cork or in Dublin and Limerick City, where there's a lot of pressure uh, on the housing situations in those areas. And then people might like to do five and ten years of their career there and then eventually move back to places like, you know, Yall or Mitchestown, Mallow Towns, the regional towns in my constituency. And unfortunately, many of them now are considering going abroad because they're finding the housing situation so difficult. But if you talk to the likes of the Construction Federation of Ireland, they will tell you that we are tying ourselves up with nuts in this country when it comes to green tape and red tape. Uh, and that's something we just have to just deal with for well, the next two well, years. I mean, I think, I mean, I know I was quite taken aback when I realised that on board Panola had been paying these um, this money out to developers. And I was thinking, why are they paying money to, to developers? And there was 105 payments of ten, totalling of 10,000 10, each, totalling over 1 million. And they had to pay that to developers if a decision on the strategic housing uh, development, if it went over 16 weeks. So 105 times it went over 16 weeks. That's just that's shocking. Correct. It, it is. And it's, it's, it's people's money. And that's just not, not good enough. And effectively, as we're coming back to all of it, those developers 
although they get a, ter- a hard time in Ireland, they want to build houses. And that's the most gobsmacking part of all of us. In the middle of the greatest housing crisis this country has faced since perhaps the 1950s, we are not able to get houses built at the pace we can because of bureaucratic red tape. I think that is an, uh, that is an indication of just how poorly run that, that organisation was and why people like Paul Hyde and other members of the of the board of that company should have never been left near us. They've left us in 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 in, in, a, in, a, in an appalling state of affairs, uh, and unfortunately, it is having huge, huge knock-on consequences for for new uh, foreign direct investment and also for housing and other big state projects that need on board penal approval for projects, things like rail orders, for example, now for new railway lines. We're currently in the process of spending 1.6 billion uh, on the rail network in Cork. So uh, having efficient decisions being made by Bob Tanala about how to progress these issues is something that's incredibly important, not alone to my own constituency in Cork East, but our entire county. Uh, and, and it just shows you how it is having a, an actual local impact as well in every area. It's not just it's not just impacting big cities as well. Okay, and, and as I mentioned in the introduction, the the, the PAC are you are have requested that the on board Panola appear before the before that Rockless Committee in January. What do you hope will come from that appearance? I hope that we're going to get some honest answers to our questions. Uh, we've seen a bit of stonewalling coming in the last couple of weeks from from different uh, officials that have here before us. You know, there has been a lot of discussion with the Department of of, of Housing and local government. Uh, and now with Inborpanala as well, um, who have been into us already, but are going to come back again. So it's important to tease out essentially what they need. You know, when they come into the committee, they will tell us things like we need more resources. But when you ask them to break that down, what area do they need those resources in? Because we effectively we need to get the answers to those questions before they get another cent of taxpayers' money. Uh, and what also needs to be discussed with them is if you look at the the number of projects that's going to be in front of them over the next two years. We all know that there are going to be huge housing developments built, not alone within Cork County, but nationally over the course of the next 18 months to two years. Those applications will come forward, and we need to make sure that that tidal wave of applications is not going to effectively destroy and cripple the organisation's capacity to carry out its function, because at the moment it seems to be breaking at the seams. You know, those people resigning, They are, I, I would imagine the reason they are resigning as they're afraid of the potential investigations, or the other side of it is that they're afraid of what it's going to be like in 18 months when all of these applications come into them. So even in Cork alone, like if you look at places like Carrie Tool, Water Rock near Middleton, there are thousands of houses going to be built in those areas. So we're going to see a huge growth in applications into Cork North Central as well. There's a lot of, of, of major housing developments going to be built, which is great. It's going to give people an opportunity to buy a house. But dealing with the applications within Borplanala is something... That, that, that's actually quite a worry. OK, so at the end of the day, do we need to just go back to the drawing board and set up a whole new planning authority? If I was to give my own view on it, what I'd like to see happening is that they should be sitting in public session when it comes to processing HHDs. Why not let the world know what the professionals think within Borpranala? You know, you look at a county council meeting, you're entitled to sit in the gallery mm-hmm. for many of their proceedings. And I, and I don't think it would be a bad suggestion for Borpanala to have some form of a public meeting where the SHDs are stamped off on. And that would allow objectors an opportunity to see what to do with well, the uh, Yeah, and, and why why they're against a particular development. Yeah, that's not a bad Precisely. suggestion. OK, we're, and we've got to wait now until January, though, for them to appear before the PAC. 
that's right. So we have a work program in the PSD. It usually works about two months ahead. Okay. Uh, what we did last week there, people may have seen as we were discussing, um, I suppose, a worrying trend where, where more nursing homes and small hotels seem to be being purchased for direct provision. So there's lots of extremely serious uh, you know, topics that come before the committee. Uh, and we have to book them, I suppose, above two months in advance, just given the level of it. And what happens is that there's also obligations on each department to be here before us after a particular amount of time. Uh, so these are one of the first available slots that they okay. brought in. I, by by the way, just on, the, on that topic, are, are you worried about the nursing homes and small hotels being turned into direct provisions? Thank yes, you. I really am. I got the impression from the committee appearance with the Department of Children Integration last week that they seem to be, uh, you know, unable to handle with what could happen in the next couple of weeks in Ireland. It's deeply worrying and really what what, what turns my, my, my stomach with all of this is that I feel there's knowledge in that department that just how bad things could get. But when we were asking the questions about the the, the, the potential ramifications um, of, of nursing homes potentially being turned into direct provision centres and more hotels being sold for direct provision services, I don't think they've asked themselves the consequences of how it's going to go down with the public. You know, we need to keep the public on board uh, regarding the refugee crisis. And it, I think people have done so much positive work um, in, in particular areas where there's been large accommodation centres set up. There's a number of them in my own constituency. Um, but I suppose if the department's plan is to increase and increase and increase numbers, there is going to come a turning point in public opinion. And if we don't have public opinion, you know, there's going to be political consequences for that, and we might see a rise in, in the far right activity in Ireland. And, and that's what we that don't want. Me. Yeah, that's and I, I'm with you on that, and it's something you can already see that starting to uh, bubble up on certainly on, on some social media sites but uh, and I, w- I was reading in the papers yesterday uh, places like Killarney and some some of the tourist areas areas of Clare there they would uh, up to 25% of their hotel beds being used to house Ukrainian refugees so at the end of the day you know running away from a war and I fully understand that and, and, and we need to offer them refuge but we're going to have a problem in tourist areas if we don't have beds for tourists because the knock on effect there is that all of the other ancillary tourists activities all suffer which well, sure, the bottom dollar with all of this is money and that's something I've really tried to, to get the answer to the Secretary General in the part of integration they're paying hotel rates around 150 euros per night they claim it was 70 information I have available to me contests that that is much much higher per night basis for accommodation so effectively even in, I, I, I'm living in Killa very near Yall and people will know in Yall that the quality hotel was sold not alone was it given a contract for six months, which was the standard procedure. Investors came in from Wexford and actually purchased that hotel in a private deal. Uh, and that is something that's starting to happen now in other locations around the country. And it's a very worrying trend because there's no public consultation, which is the big mistake. And myself as a public representative, we were not given any heads up or information to say that this was going to happen. So a lot of owners of hotels that might have been the most profitable in the world are now saying to themselves, hang on a second here, we can bring in investors that do this they specialise in this. They will give us huge quantities of money. You know, in some cases, there was hotels that were purchased. To my knowledge, multiples were paid of what they would have been purchased um, um, during the recession. Uh, and essentially, you know, there's a whole financial aspect to this as well, Patricia, that the public deserve answers to. And the rates that have been paid per night are, are so high. I'm not surprised that places like Killarney and places like Yall 
are being identified where they yeah, may have and, hotel capacity. And there's, you can partly understand if you've got a hotel that was losing money or nursing homes and there's already a crisis in some of the smaller nursing homes who um, you know are struggling to pay all of their bills. If suddenly they can flip from a hotel or a nursing home into an asylum centre where they're guaranteed 100% occupancy every night, you can understand from a business point of view why people do it. I certainly do. And what has to be said about it is that 150 euros per night, that's very, very large quantities of money in comparison uh, to what many of those hotels could have got over the winter season in the autumn and January. So it gives an indication of why this is happening so widespread, where there are so many people willingly offering up accommodation. But what I do think is a bigger worry, Patricia, and it doesn't, it's not fair on the public, is where a direct provision centre is being set up in a hotel that's being sold for that purpose without any public consultation, without the requirement for planning commission. That's wrong. Uh, and it's, it's been done by stealth in certain areas. Uh, and that's something I did want to highlight because even I as a government TD have been embarrassed by how this has been handled by the Minister O'Gorman. Uh, I do not think that it's been in any, any bit fair on representatives from government parties trying to give answers to people who essentially feel it's the government that's doing this but a matter, matter of fact. It's private investors that are coming in doing this. And in what is required uh, for them is that they get uh, you know, a very large sum of money on a per night basis and a contractual basis over six months with an option to renew um, for the course of the current conflict as well. So essentially, you know, it's creating a market for Ireland to be able to potentially host over 100,000 people. Uh, and I'd, I'd be very worried about the knock-on consequence of what would happen if a smaller, less profitable nursing homes were looking at this as an option, because we know there are two examples of where this has happened already. I, I teased that out at the committee, uh, and they seem very, very unwilling and uncomfortable to answer my questions. And actually, when I say if anyone wants to see what those responses were like, they're the last two videos on my, 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 my Facebook page as well, and to give people an indication of what it's like. But Patricia, above all else, you hear it every day of the week. You know, the public have been extraordinarily generous and they have done their bit. They have done everything that they can to support people that are integrating here while there's an awful war going on. But other other aspects of direct provision uh, are, are being taken advantage of, in my view, as people landing into Dublin with no documentation. Yeah, and, and, and let's, let's also, let's also um, state that a direct provision centre is very different to a centre that's housing Ukrainian refugees. They're not here under direct provision. That is exactly it. Yeah. But we have operators that were operating before the conflict in Ukraine are purchasing centres for Ukrainians. They need to be very clear on what their intentions are going to be post this conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's going to be very unlikely that hotels that are in operation are going to return to that purpose. Yeah, and then, as I said, a whole area loses out, particularly some of our, our bigger tourist areas. OK, we leave it there, James. Listen, thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, good morning, Chair. That is Fianna Fáil, uh, Cork East, uh, Dáil Deputy James O'Connor, 0818-103-103. John Paul taking your calls. Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Last night, a public meeting was held at the Temperance Hall in Kinsale. It was to discuss ongoing concerns around the Cork to Kinsale bus route. Joining me to discuss uh, the issues is the Fine Gael Senator who initiated last night's meeting and that's uh, Tim Lombard. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. Uh, and you're welcome. Now, I suppose for people outside of the area and who don't know or use this bus route, can you just outline some of the concerns local people have about this particular bus route? 
Yeah, this is a very well-used bus route. It basically goes from Cork to Kinsale, and there are several issues that are after copy up in particular in the last maybe two years. But the, the original bus stop was in the actual bus station itself, but it was moved to Clonbarra Street. When it was moved to Clonbarra Street, there was no shelter there, and it's also it's probably not the most safest location in Cork City for the people that are using the bus. And there was no no consultation with moving this bus stop. It just moved overnight. General public were absolutely outraged. It was in the mid, middle of COVID, and it just happened. But the other issue is that there's no bus shelter there whatsoever. And in the last six weeks in particular, people have got absolutely drenched. It's phenomenal the amount of stories we heard last night. And capacity on the bus becomes a massive issue now. There's people who are waiting 25 minutes for the bus. They're queuing up and then they can't get on the bus. And if you've been standing out in the weather conditions that we've had of late for 25 Mm -hmm. minutes, then the bus comes up and uh, comes along and it's full. What do you have to do? Wait for the next one? Wait for the next one. People are waiting hour and a half for a bus. And last night was a real dirty wet night down Kinsale and the hall was full. I was taken back by it. I was saying there'd be nobody there because of the weather. Literally, I've never seen a public meeting like it. And it was literally from your students trying to get to UCC to your old age pensioner and everyone in between. And uh, it really was a positive public meeting. People are really angry about the actual service itself. And they're trying to get answers. And the answers they're trying to get are, why is the bus stop moved? Uh, Can we get it relocated back into the actual bus station itself? And also capacity issues. And your previous minister spoke about... um, and uh, what we have regarding the Ukrainian issue itself. One of the issues we have at the moment is that there's no direct bus going to the airport, and up in the airport you have a business park, you have a hotel that has Ukrainians there, and you also have obviously an airport that has tourists coming in there. So what we have is the bus could go to the airport and it could be half empty by the time it leaves the airport, because the actual capacity just might be going to the airport itself. Would, 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 it, would, would a double-decker bus... Sort so of a, double, a double decker will put an extra 23 seats onto the actual service itself. Yeah. And like, I think it would help it. I think a direct bus to the airport itself would probably minimise or solve the issue more so. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think that would be probably one of the solutions. But like, if we had a bus going to the airport, it would solve, it would be a part of the capacity issue. If we had the other problem, which we had a bus going, um, a double decker bus would give us an extra 23 seats. At the public meeting last night, and I have to compliment people now, we had a private bus operator from Skibbereen who came up to talk about what he's proposing to put online, which is basically a half-hour service going is, through Banhasek. Is that the West, West Cork Connect? West Cork Connect, yeah. yeah. I, I was just about to say, would they be able to help out? Yeah, so basically they have the licence for the half-hour service, yeah. but they have the licence for the full-hour service. So on the hour, but they have the licence on the half-hour, West Cork Connect have the licence. And they're short a major piece of infrastructure in Banhasic Village, two bus stops. If we can get that sorted, we can get that run up and going, which will come the other way into Cork City through Bishop Town, which will be very effective for people going to CUH, to CIT, on to UCC, and to the Mercy. So that would be a part of the solution as well. So we just need to get Cork and Council to work with West Cork Connect to make sure we can get those two bus stops put in place in Banhasic. But we also had last night, and I have to compliment these three men, three bus errand drivers who came up from these cars on their own time, on their own expense, that should talk about their concerns about the actual stop itself. 
So, like, it was a really, really productive And what did, what did they have to say, Tim? Well, their view was that they had no um, actual insight into why the actual bus stop was moved. They don't believe it's safe. They believe they are being put under pressure as bus drivers because people are absolutely stoked trying to get onto a bus that's absolutely full. And they were there to maybe say, say it's not their problem, as in, like, they want to apologise for it, but it's not of their making. And like, have we any explanation as to why the pickup got moved from the bus station? Because at least at the bus station, if it's raining, you can stand in out of the rain until your bus arrives. Well, if it's in the bus station, you can have a cup of coffee. Yeah, to and sit down you, and wait. The whole lot, you can buy the evening or do whatever you want to do. It's all there, safe and sound. And this comes down to how we actually fund our bus stops and how we fund our actual transportation system. The TNA fund all these bus stops that will fund how we actually fund the bus service. And I've written to them on 52 occasions, looking them for clarification of why they, why they moved us, but more importantly, to try and arrange a meeting between bus airing, city council and myself. And they have written back literally last week saying they don't have the resources or the personnel to do the meeting. Like they're an industry that is totally under control and untouchable. And I think that's probably the one frustration that came out of the meeting last night. The people that make these decisions won't turn up in a public meeting. They won't give any actual answers. And because of that, literally people are standing in a bus stop in the rain for hours. Yeah, and, and possibly a decision that was made in an office in Dublin, uh, Tim, by people that don't even know the area. Completely. And I think that's the real point. This was done probably on the laptop working the most appropriate way to run a system. Like, logic would dictate, and I'm not being made just now, but there's a generation of ladies in particular that I talked to, Kim Sale, that like the actual safety of the actual bus station. They can go to the toilet, they have everything there that they want. They're now put on literally a side of a street with no bus stop, and they don't feel safe. Yeah, and it just, it just seems archaic that we're asking people to stand out in the rain, particularly when we have a bus station that can be used. I'm wondering as well, the reducing the fares for young people, which obviously was hugely welcomed, did that cause an increase in users on that bus? Absolutely. And yeah. I think across users, across the entire service, and the fares for the treatment from bus airing yesterday, which weren't there on bus airing's behalf, they're in a private capacity, they would have said that since that move made, the amount of people using public transport has increased dramatically, which is a brilliant thing. But like what we're really trying to solve here is the capacity issue, the shelter issue, but also trying to get the NTA to actually talk to them. And I think if we had that conversation, we could solve an awful lot of these issues. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. the actual bus stop issue in Van Hassick regarding the, the West Cork Connect, if we got that solved, that would be a major part of the okay. issue. All right, listen, keep us informed, uh, Tim. In the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Super. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, bye bye. That is uh, Fine Gael, uh, Senator in West Cork, Tim Lombard, 0818103103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862. 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Court Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We were talking about bus services in the last hour, in particular the problems uh, for people who get the commute daily between Cork and Kinsale. And it makes no sense that they move the bus stop uh, to Clontarf Street, but taking it out from the bus station and the atrocious weather, whatever about in when it's a lovely sunny day, and even on a lovely sunny day, people might want to stand out for 25 minutes in intense uh, sunshine. But certainly in wet weather, and you're absolutely so- soaking wet then getting onto the bus. 
bus for your journey home and then and other times you're standing there soaking west and the bus comes and it's full and you don't get on that just must be soul destroying for people so there are problems that certainly need to be addressed on that particular route but that led John in Mallow to contact us when he heard us talking about buses but his is a different issue he uses the expressway bus which takes him from Mallow to uh, Cork City. Now, he says he doesn't do it every day. He does it from uh, time to time. Uh, And he normally gets a one-day return. So he'd hop on the bus in Mallow, go up to Cork City to do whatever bits and pieces he needs to do and then returns. And he said normally that return bus ticket is €11.50 but he got on it recently to discover it's gone up by €4 and he was asked for €15.50 and and he obviously questioned the bus driver and says why has it gone up by €4 and the bus driver explained to him that on that particular route they're no longer selling a day return ticket they are instead offering everybody a monthly return ticket because that particular expressway route is the route that travels from Cork City to Galway City. And, you know, John accepts for a lot of people getting on that bus, they might they wouldn't be going from Cork to Galway City and doing a day return and coming back again. For many people, you know, they might be students or for whatever, might be people working. So they might go up on a Sunday evening and come back down on a Friday. So it makes more sense for them to have a monthly uh, ticket But he said the sting in the tail is because they've got rid of the daily return ticket and a daily return ticket is always cheaper than a monthly return uh, ticket. Now the people who travel on that bus on a daily basis or who just need to use it as John does from time to time, he feels that they are uh, being penalised and he's got to pay an extra four euro. Now we've contacted Expressway and we are waiting a response and of course Expressway is part of Bus Air and so we're technically contacting Bus Air to find out why that has happened. Why could they not offer two tickets, John? to me would be the very obvious way of doing it give a day return for people like your good self John and others who just want to hop on the bus go to the city do whatever you need to do and then come back again or perhaps people are going up uh, to work up and down in the day and then for people who are getting on the bus in Cork City going all the way to Galway and won't be returning uh, till maybe the end of the week or sometime during the month let them buy a monthly return ticket at the whatever the, the the price is between Cork and Galway it's not making any sense to me we'll see John we'll wait until we when we hear back from Bus Aaron uh, we'll let you know how we get on 0818 103 103 and let's stay on transportation issues because it was carried on the news there uh, again at uh, 11 o'clock fantastic news for the good people of McCroom and anyone who passes through McCroom on a regular basis with the news that the first section of the 300 million euro, I had to stop in the 300 million euro, God, it's a huge, huge project, is it? It's the, the McCroom bypass is going to open next month. And that, of course, is after been decades upon decades of uh, campaigning. Part of it's a 22 kilometre N22 Ballyvorney to McCroom Road running from Coolcower on the Cork city side of McCroom to uh, Carrigafoca, that's on the western side of McCroom, is due to open to the general public and we now have the official date has just been announced. It is going to happen on the 9th of December. That road, of course, will eliminate what has been a notorious traffic black spot on the main Cork Killarney Road and chronic traffic jams which choked the town centre. I mean, if you ever had to go through at peak times, 
you might as well pass a picnic you'd be in the car so long you'd probably end up being hungry between the start and the end of your journey and engineers hope to open the section now on the 9th of uh, December and then that will open and then work will continue on the other two sections according to the most recent update from the project team there's been good progress in the last six months on the cool core and Carrigafuca section and that's allowing for the official uh, opening just before Christmas and engineers then hope to have the complete system there's two other parts to it and they're hoping by the middle of next year people have been so so patient in that area but it really is a fantastic news story and we've been told that the McCroom bypass uh, section Ballyvornie to McCroom will be opened by the uh, Taoiseach himself I'm just I had to stop and think there will Micheál Martin still be Taoiseach he will he'll still be Taoiseach on the 9th of December and it was confirmed by the Mayor of the County of Cork uh, Danny Collins so certainly some good news to celebrate this morning 0818 103 103. What else is coming into us? We were talking about planning in the last hour and the problems, the controversies that has been around on board Planola and the problems that developers have on board Planola and ordinary people get so frustrated with decisions that are made by on board Planola. And uh, we had young James O'Connor. Cork East, what, isn't he the youngest? I think he's the youngest uh, TD in the Dáil. He's basically saying now that Ambord Panola is not fit, fit for purpose. And when I put it to him, do we need to just draw a line under Ambord Panola and just get a whole new planning authority and, and build it from the bottom up and put in place a planning authority that a, a lot of people will have, because I think confidence is going in Ambord Panola because of all of the different controversies. And then because of that, there's been delays upon delays. But to hear that developers were being paid out €10,000 each every time their decision was held up for at least uh, 16 weeks, it's just, that's galling. And that, of course, is taxpayers' money. Michael Sullivan in Castle Bear was listening to uh, Deputy James O'Connor. He said, I agree 100% with Deputy O'Connor, not alone on board Planola, but planners. And the 1963 Planning Act has inhibited many, many developments, says Michael, in this country. The whole operation is disgraceful and that is putting it mildly. The 1963 Planning Act should be completely taken off the statute books and completely rewritten to serve today's purpose and for the years ahead. My God, says Michael in his text, when is any government going to stand up for the people of this country and advance projects we seem to be living in the dark ages and it just got me I, I had to do a quick Google search of the 1963 Planning Act just to remind myself of that uh, Planning Act. And when it came in in 1963, it was brought in. And again, I think Michael is right. You know, 19, Ireland of 1963 is very, very different to Ireland of 2022. So maybe maybe exactly what Michael is saying, if we're, we're going to look at a whole new planning authority and try to build up a new planning authority, do we need to start at the very top, the very top being the Planning Act? And the 1963 was the Local Government Planning and Development Act. And it was an act that was brought in, and I quote, and this is from the government's website, to make provision in the interests of the common good 
for the proper planning and development of cities, towns and other areas where urban or rural, including the preservation and improvement of the amenities, therefore, to make certain provisions with respect to acquisition of land. But when that act was put in place, it also states it was put in place to repeal the town and regional planning acts that at that stage were on the statute books from 1934 and 1939. And there was obviously other enactments that it replaced uh, as well. So what they did in the early 60s was they looked at what was in place at the time and they probably thought that the 1960s was 1960s Ireland was very different to the 1930s Ireland when the town and regional planning acts were put in place. But looking at that, I'm just wondering then when the 63 planning act came in and it repealed the town and regional planning acts, did it then take almost all the power away from the town and the regions when it came to making decisions on planning. And that, to me, seems to be certainly when we get complaints in from people about planning decisions and decisions made by Onboard Planola, that's probably one of the biggest uh, arguments that we hear are decisions that are made outside of the area by people who don't really know the area at all. People that are in, you know, they're ivory towers in Dublin and there's nothing wrong about having an ivory tower of an office in, in Dublin and you know we know that's where the government and, and where all of the main departments are and where all the main decisions are, are made but they have to listen to people on the ground and they have to take on board the views of people on the ground and they have to know what's going on locally I, it, it, it frustrates me and I know it frustrates a lot of our listeners when decisions are made by people who are not even in the area uh, it just it, it's frustrating how do they know what's going Going on if they're not actually in the area, and that's not to say that every decision can be made locally. I'm not saying that uh, either. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. And then when I was also talking with uh, James O'Sullivan, uh, James O'Connor, when we went from planning, uh, we were talking about what happens at the Public Accounts Committee, and he was talking about some hotels and some nursing homes that are being converted into centres for asylum seekers and the worry that that's causing to some local people because local people are again decisions are being made elsewhere and locals are not being told about what's happening in the area and you know I then brought in about how tourist areas are really going to struggle going forward if they're losing a lot of their beds because the beds in hotels have been used to house either asylum seekers or the refugees from Ukraine and tourist towns now were already starting to see the problems that it's causing because there won't be beds for uh, tourists at Mora and I mentioned the town of Killarney because I was reading about that on the papers uh, yesterday. Uh, Mora says uh, Killarney is only 20 minutes away from me when you're talking about planning and when you're talking about hotels and now 25% of hotel beds all over the country now are housing either asylum seekers or refugees from Ukraine. Morris as she's hearing of people who are cancelling holidays she's also hearing of people who are feeling intimidated by the groups of people that are now living in Killarney. She said I'm not talking about women and, ch- and children but what I'm talking about are groups of men and Morris said that that can be quite intimidating and I do think you know there is a, there is a difference between facilities that are housing Ukrainian refugees and then asylum seekers because asylum seekers are here uh, they're Ukrainians are entitled to come here because of what's happening in their country. Asylum seekers are here and then there's a process in place and that process seems to take for ages to work out are they genuine asylum seekers or not and there's always been the theory and 
I think the, the facts are probably there as well that there'll always be people who will try and abuse that system and let on that they are in fear of their life when they come to this country and some say we're seeing as a soft touch when it comes to uh, asylum seekers so it's the process needs to be speeded up and we need to get to the bottom of what's wrong with that process that when somebody arrives in this country if they're genuine asylum seekers and they're genuinely freeing uh, for, for their lives you know morally we have responsibility to look after them but it's when they're not genuine asylum seekers and I think that's the part that irks a lot of people and it also makes people very worried in that you don't know who's coming into the country. 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text or whatsApp to 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs Albernian Hotel in Mallow currently have openings for full and part-time bar staff. CVs please to info at hibernianhotelmallow.com Osborne Recruitment they are looking to recruit an accounts assistant slash bookkeeper. It's to join an established and well-known company based in Mallow. CVs please to karen.obrien at osborne.ie Dano Supervalue in Mallow are looking for a fresh food manager email your interest please to 344-mallow-hr at supervalue.ie and the Woodbrook Family Practice in Newmarket they're looking for a medical secretary slash receptionist to apply please email medicalsecretary987 at gmail.com You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. More than 400 people attended a protest outside Cork University Maternity Hospital on Sunday in support of home birth access, particularly for people living in rural areas. The protest organiser was Cara Spratt from Ballinhasic, who gave birth to her four beautiful children through the Cork Home Birth Service. And I'm delighted to say Cara joins me this morning. Good morning to Cara. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Now, the issue of home births, it, it's become topical because of the HSE's recommendation limiting access depending on how close mum-to-be lives from the hospital. Can you just remind us of what the HSE are recommending? Okay, so the HSE are recommending here that all people accessing the National Home Birth Service would reside 20 minutes or less blue light distance from the nearest maternity service. Now, should this be affected, approximately 50% of applicants nationally would be denied a home birth. And in some areas of support, this figure would be as high as 80%. Now, Cork and Kerry represents 40% approximately of national home births. So it would be a massive blow to the people of West Cork and Kerry. And that's probably because we, in here in Cork, we only have the maternity hospital in the city. Exactly. And so what you would see here then is that rural families would be left with no choice, just one pathway of care, which is that long, arduous journey to UMH. I mean, I'm sitting here in Bellin Halsig and there's just been a really heavy thunderstorm. And I'm thinking a winter's night, women at the side of the road, and that's what will happen. They will birth at the side of the road unassisted or worryingly they would be funneled into non-medically necessary inductions and all the risks associated with those. Traditionally, do we have a lot of home births here in Cork? We do. So, as I said, they represent 40% nationally. So, to give you an idea of statistics, 
In 2020, we had 127 renewable sinister service, and in 2021, it was 156. Now, those numbers are growing, um, particularly since COVID restrictions. We've seen a huge uptake and interest in home birth. And obviously, so having your support system, having your partner right there, where partners are currently still being excluded from antenatal visits. So people are looking elsewhere. And what we tend to find is when you look to homework, when you look outside of the accepted dorm, if you like, you tend to do your homework. Our families come to us and they have done so much research. They've looked at all the safety data and, of course, it all backs homework. And I think it's very important that listeners who may not be familiar with the service understand that homework is the safest operating unit of the HSE maternity services. Take me back. Why did you opt for a home birth, Cara? So I had five children and my first baby was born in the hospital up in Seaman. had a lovely birthday. It was Keelan O'Donoghue. At that point, I guess we had heard of it. Far in advance of that, I have an aunt and an uncle who were born with We had a family friend. And it was always on our radar. Uh, once the Rose was born, then I think we decided that we would like to continue this journey by exploring home birth. So my second baby was born. He would be 11 up to this month. So it's 11 years since my first home birth. We explored homework, did all the research and debate, and knew it was for us. And I guess by the time we came to our third one, we had two very interesting comparisons. There really was no question in terms of the standard of care we received under the homework service. It's absolutely gold standard. So for us, we were fortunate enough to go on to have the rest of our children at home with the most recent birth being In 2020, I had a COVID lockdown baby at home. Oh, well done. And did you use, did you have uh, the same midwife or did you have different midwives for the four? I did. So Mary Cronin, based in St. Sailor here, has been my primary midwife for the last 11 years. But at the birth, you get the attendance of two midwives. So your primary midwife will do your antenatal care and develop that relationship with you over the months, over six months approximately, eight months prior to the baby's birth. And then on the eve of the birth itself, you'd have a second midwife join you. You've got this absolutely fantastic standard of care there. So you were giving birth at home, particularly the lockdown baby in in 2020. <laughs> you would have had your other, were your other four children in the house? They were. They were there for all of them, actually. Oh. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
masculine perception about Indy's bread, that's Indy, my last name, baby, is my then 10-year-old daughter, she was almost seven, she was right beside me as he was born. And I thought it was such an empowering moment for a young girl to experience. Because by and large, when we really, you know, we confront first, front and centre, we are right there at the centre of it. And all we have in our mind sometimes these images we see on television of massively dramatised birth. So for her to understand that birth is a normal physiological process, it is safe and it is supportive. You know, she's right there welcoming her brother into the world. And that's given her a very special relationship with him. What a gorgeous experience. It really was. And like with the others, even when, let's say, my third child was born, she was July 2014, scorching hot. Heat wave day, and the children were outside and the paddling pool at the back, and I had pet the pool inside in the kitchen. Um, and they were busy, you know, they were playing about, and they were in and out. And I guess for them, it was a little bit boring. Oh, they're still there, they're still sitting there breathing. Um, and then they rushed into the kitchen just as I lifted the legs of the world. Um, and we have a photo of that. We have a wonderful caption of that with my two midwives, Elke and Mary, beside me. And just that picture of family. It's a family event, it's a cultural event. And in a low-risk setting, there's absolutely no reason why that can't occur safely at home. And when you opt for home birth, what happens to all the gynae checks beforehand? Is that done at home with your midwife or do you still have to go to the hospital to attend? Okay, so it's a very comprehensive programme that we have. So I speak to the court here at the UMH. So when an application for home birth is made, um, there's a rigorous risk assessment. So not just anyone can access the service. We are looking at low-risk pregnancy. So, um, you know, if you're carrying multiple babies, for example, you're out of the service. Um, so you undertake that risk assessment with your midwife. The standard dating scan at CUMH is offered. Uh, there is also then a clinical oversight by a designated home breast consultant. That would be Fergus McCarthy up in CUMH. There's a clinic running once a month um, to assess home birth applications. And there is also the detailed anatomy scan, approximately 21 to 23 weeks. So again, no stone is unturned here. Now, if at any point during the pregnancy, the risk assessment changes. So let's say a woman develops preeclampsia, which is a dangerously high blood pressure, or gestational diabetes. They are then transitioned across into the acute services. But again, this is done all very seamlessly with the support of your midwife. Um, and, and unfortunately, that will happen at times. But it is the safest decision in those cases. Mm. It's a case by case basis. Yeah, because everything everything has been done with keeping <laughs> mum and baby safe. I mean, that's that's the whole idea of it. Nobody is going to, particularly a, a very experienced midwife. Nobody is going to make any any decision that they think is going to affect mum and baby. So everything's going to be done for, from a safety point of view. Have you any understanding why the HSC have decided to make this recommendation and? What are they basing it on? Well, it's certainly not safety. I can say that, Patricia, because all the safety statistics speak to how successfully the service has been operating for more than 20 years. Now, the National Maternity Hospital above in Dublin does have 30 minute caps. However, you know, to take that Dublin model and to seek to implement that in counties like Cork, it is simply not workable. Our demographic, our infrastructure, the spread of our population, it, it would actually do a massive disservice to families in court if we were to look at that. And I mean, we have had this service operating safely outside of 30 minutes. And I would say that this is, so it's not evidence-based and it's not based on best international practice either. So if you look, for example, at jurisdictions like Canada and New Zealand, they operate home birth systems over much larger distances. 
And then a Canadian study in 2019 actually looked into this very question. And they said, OK, let's look at reducing travel time to maternity units. Let's look at 30 minutes or more. And this study found no increased risk of adverse outcomes for planned birth more than 30 minutes from the hospital. So we know that reducing it does not improve perinatal outcomes. So really a better belief why choice would be removed from families um, on something that isn't even borne out by the statistics or research. It just seems so unfair. It really seems so unfair. And I'm thinking, Cara, of women, uh, in, in, particularly in West Cork, who are pregnant at the moment. Are they now being told by their midwife that it's possible that their home births may be off the cards? Should this go ahead, that would indeed be the case. Ah. So one of, yep, one of our midwives who serves the West Cork community by and large, Elke Hasner, Elke would have all 11 of her bookings between now and April taken off the book should this go ahead. Uh, and that, to me, actually presents far. If we're going to talk safety, this presents a danger to families. This presents the danger of families being left to birth unassisted. It also reduces our autonomy in birth choices, um, and it will see an increase in free birthing as well. I think that every woman really is entitled to midwifery continuity-led care, which has been consistently shown to improve out birth outcomes. So there's absolutely no reason to deprive women in rural areas of this. I was looking at photographs that were taken at the protest on uh, Sunday and I thought it was just gorgeous to see there were so many children there carrying little signs saying that they were safely birthed at home in all the different years. I thought that was, uh, that was so sweet. What was the mood like at the, at the protest on Sunday, Cara? Patricia, you hit the nail on the head. There was gorgeous was the word. The energy was so beautiful. A gathering of people peacefully standing for what they know intrinsically to be a service of immense value and importance to us nationally. So you have, you know, babies four weeks old, right up the grown adults coming up to our midwife saying, I was going to do it with baby. We have, in fact, I heard a story this week that we have two adults who were born in home settings who are now going out with each other. The same midwife cared for their mothers. Um, but the whole atmosphere was wonderful. It really, really was. Okay. And I think we had, we estimation, we had probably over 500, I think. It stretched from the traffic lights there at the main gate to QH right up to Little. And of course, many of the people who would have travelled would have had to have d- done longer journeys than the 30 minutes that they're talking about in the back of a, a, an ambulance with blue flashing lights. Uh, listen, and many people came from Kerry on Sunday as well. Did they? We had people come from Nimerick Good. and West Cork, a huge cohort from West Cork. I really, really do hope that you're listened to, uh, Cara. Thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us this morning. Thank I really you appreciate so much. it. Good morning to you. Bye-bye, bye-bye. That is Cara Spratt from Ballonhasic, as I say, organiser of that particular uh, protest because it is going to take choice away from women who opt and want a home birth. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. Text WhatsApps 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. A Cork farmer is rewilding a huge portion of West Cork and will tonight host an online seminar to discuss his work. Owen Dalton has been an ambassador for a project called Farming for Nature and he joins me to explain more about his rewilding work. Good morning to you, Owen. 
Hi, Patricia. Yeah. Nice to talk to well, you. Well, it's lovely. It's lovely to talk to you. You're a native of uh, Dublin. Uh, can, can you take me back? You, you run a farm near Iries on the Bear Peninsula. Take me back. How did you end up on the wilds of beautiful West Cork out on the Bear Peninsula? So I wanted to, myself and my family were planning on moving to the country for quite a while and we, we, we happened upon the Bear Peninsula and fell in love with it. Um, and this farm came up for sale. Uh, so we sold our house in, in Kilmainham, Dublin and, and moved down and, and bought this farm. Uh, it was it was a 73-acre farm uh, near Iris on the northern side of the peninsula. And what really drew me to it was the fact that the, the, the farm had been uh, left unused for, for a long time before that. So it, the, the, the pockets of wild nature, of native trees and so on, had had a chance to, to spread out and most of the land was covered in wild natural forest. Um, now, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I, I soon after learned that what we had on the farm was actually rainforest. Yeah, I, I was unaware of this until I started reading up on uh, about the work that you're doing and your hope to restore the bearer rainforest. Talk to me about that, because I think a lot of people will be unaware that there was a rainforest in Beira. That's right. Uh, I've actually written a book about it, so if I can just give a quick plug Please for do. that. It's, it's called An Irish Atlantic Rainforest. Um and I was I was totally amazed to discover that it was rainforest because, like any anybody else, or like most people, uh, to to my mind, rainforest is what you find in the tropics, in in the Amazon and the Congo and and such places. But it turns out that we have rainforest as well, but it's it's called temperate rainforest. And the way that you know that you're in rainforest anywhere in the world. Is by the is through the presence of what are called epiphytes. Epiphytes are plants that grow on trees, but without being rooted in the ground. Um, so they don't include include the likes of ivy or or woodbine honeysuckle. Um, they're usually ferns and mosses, but they can be all sorts of plants, including flowering plants and even non-plants like lichens. Um, and they can only grow in places where you get a very high uh, and frequent uh, arrival of rainfall. So where where you have lots of epiphytes in a forest, that's rainforest. And the forest here is absolutely just dripping with epiphytes. And in order to your work with rewilding, is it simply just leaving, handing the land back to nature? Is it is it is it is it as simple as that? It it's it kind of is and it kind of isn't. It's it's um, what's usually required is that we undo the the damage that we people have done in the past. And in my particular case, that meant two things really. First of all, it meant um, because when I arrived, the, the forest was severely overgrazed by feral goats and sika deer, both of which are non-native invasive species that that we people introduced. 
and they were grazing the whole place completely bare. So from about head height down, there was absolutely no vegetation apart from mosses and a couple of other things. All of the extremely rich uh, ground flora that, that you'd you should have in a woodland was just was just not there it was it, it had been completely eaten out uh, on top of that uh, there was no natural there was no regeneration of the trees because every every little oak seedling or whatever else that that germinated got immediately eaten so the the forest was was kind of dying on its feet and also what you had was invasion by a whole host of non-native invasive plant species the worst of the whole lot uh, of 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 those was rhododendron well, particles. I knew I knew you were going to say the rhododendron they yeah. look gorgeous but by god are they an invasive species they're a real scourge yeah. in any pockets of native woodland in places along the west coast like this and so those two those two factors the overgrazing by invasive um herbivores and invasion by uh, non-native plant species was actually killing the forest and the the desperately sad thing about it is that you find the exact same situation in pretty much all uh, of our tiny remaining uh, pockets of native forest across the country, such as Killarney National Park, which is in a, a terrible state for exactly the same reasons. So, so while so you got want, ri- did you t- you got rid of the rhododendron? Did you? I did. Yeah. Uh, I I spent in my spare time. I went around hunting it out and and getting rid of it. And I also applied for a scheme called the Native Woodland Scheme, which uh, financed the erection of a a, de- a fence around most of the woods to keep out the goats and the, and the seeker deer. Okay. And and the result of all that was was this absolutely spectacular coming to life of the whole forest the whole place just erupted with the most amazing species diversity and abundance um just this real this real renaissance if you like so to go back to your original question is rewilding just walking away from land no it's it's not really uh because you have to undo the 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 effects uh, you have to undo the the, the things that we have done that are causing natural ecosystems not to work properly. Yeah, I, like, like I read, for example, you there, there obviously was sheep on the land when you purchased it. You replaced the sheep with, with the Dexter cattle. That's right. Well, the, the sheep were my own uh, okay. because the farm came with um, a portion of commonage, which is usually rough mountain land. So there were 40 acres of commonage with as part of the farm. And that's, you can't really do a whole lot with commonage except graze it uh, with with livestock. So I put sheep on it uh, as, as a, to, to bring in some extra income. But sheep are, are, are an absolute ecological disaster because they graze very selectively. So if you have an area with naturally regenerating woodland, for example, uh, and sheep get access to that, uh, the first thing they'll eat are the, the tree seedlings. Even if there's plenty of other stuff to eat, they'll go straight for the tree seedlings first because they're they're more nutritious and therefore tastier. Um, so they're, they're a complete disaster sheep, really. And I got rid of them after about five years. I sold them off um, and I got Dexter cattle instead. 
dead. And why Dexter cattle? Well, Dexters, first off, they're they're very tough, so they can live on the kind of rough mountain ground that would normally be only used for sheep. Um, and cattle are better than sheep in the, in in ecological terms because they don't graze selectively. So they they eat ever a bit of everything, but they don't focus in on uh, uh, tree seedlings like that, like the sheep do. Flora. Yeah, yeah, like the sheep do. Well so, done, well, well, well thank done. Thank you. And and I was looking, I was really, I think with, with the fact that I knew you were going to come on the program this morning, just a headline caught yeah. my eye in the Irish Times this morning where they were talking about twenty five critically endangered plant species on the cusp of extinction in Ireland due to global warming. And 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 I look at headlines like that and I think headlines like that must really worry you and the type of work that you were doing. They do, they do. Uh, I mean, I think really we have two massive looming problems, one of which gets a bit more attention than the other. And the first is climate change, as you call it. I prefer to call it climate breakdown okay. because I think that it, it, it communicates better the, the reality of what it actually is. Climate change makes it sound like kind of changing weather or something like that, whereas really what's what's happening is the collapse of what has until now been a stable climate. Uh, and that's, you know, there are no words that can adequately convey how serious that is for all of us. But the other, the other possibly even worse um, thing that's happening is the collapse of nature. Mm-hmm. And it's happening globally, uh, but in Ireland we're we're amongst the worst off off uh, places on the entire planet in in terms of ecological integrity still uh, on Ireland and in Ireland uh, and it's it's hard to imagine how things could be worse here in Ireland really in well, those that's, in those terms and that's why projects like what you're doing is so important your book is called an Irish Atlantic rainforest where can people get that book um Owen? They can buy it in any good bookshop or okay. they can order it online from Eason's or Waterstones or any any of of the good bookshops. And, and your seminar tonight, can, how can pe- are you still open to people logging on to that? As far as I know, yeah, yeah. If they look for farming for nature is is the is the um, organization who are running that. So if you Google farming for nature, there should a link should come up that people can click on to and, register. And who, who do you hope will tune in tonight? I think every as many people as possible. I'm I'm hoping that it won't only be people who are rurally based, but okay. also also people living in urban areas and villages and towns and cities because. These are issues that regard everybody. They don't just regard people who are living in the countryside. I, th- I think we need to have a mass awakening, really, of of interest in how we relate to the land and how we use land and and what's happening to nature. Okay, and you and your family owe no regrets about leaving Dublin for the beautiful Bear Peninsula. Not a single one. <laughs> I, I, you wouldn't get me back now. And, and, and do you have children? Did you? How did your children feel about it? Your partner? Well, well, they were very young right. um, when we when we moved down. Um, they, they, so they've grown up here. I mean, they, unlike me, they wouldn't consider themselves blow-ins. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I don't think people in the area would consider them blow-ins. But yeah. they, they, they would consider me, me well, a blow-in. Well, I think you're, you're and doing, they always will. Well, you're doing inc- incredible uh, work, uh, Owen. Uh, we'll stay so in much, contact uh, with you. It really was a pleasure uh, to talk to you this morning. Thank you for that and, and continue you. with your amazing work. Good morning to I you. Will. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. You that is uh, Owen Dalton from the Bear Peninsula. What a lovely, lovely man. And I suppose proving more than anything uh, that he sees the land and how we should all see the land as something much more than just a resource for us to produce uh, food for uh, humans. Uh, We can learn so much from the likes of people like Owen Dalton. But certainly for me, I was totally unaware that there was ever a rainforest in Beira. And there's a big project going right up along the wild Atlantic Way uh, to try to bring back many of the rainforests that were there. And it doesn't have to be all of the land. It can just be a section of uh, the land. So we wish our own luck. OK, um, we need to take a break. We do. We have news at uh, 12 midday on the way. John Paul continues to take your calls. 0818 103 103. Text WhatsApp 0862 103 103 with a reminder to you that in the next hour we will have a pair of tickets to go along to see Christy Moore live at the Marquee Saturday the 17th of June. We'll be giving those away. Afternoons at 12. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Court Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. To uh, Christy Moore, I've got a pair of tickets to give away to Christy Moore. Christy Moore has just announced this week that he's going to play live at the Marquee next year, 2023. And the date's been set as Saturday, the 17th of June, with tickets officially going on sale this Monday, this Thursday morning. Uh, through Ticketmaster.ie uh, and they'll go on sale on Thursday morning at 9am uh, but Aiken Promotions has kindly given us the very very first of the Christy Moore tickets to give away and we are giving away a pair of tickets every day this week how are we giving them away we're playing you a clip a very short clip of a Christy Moore song you have to identify the title of the song please there's a Dutchman playing a mandolin a German looking for a Limo Flynn and one of probably his most popular songs I imagine and we'll have people who know every single word of that song if you know the name of that Christy Moore track I need you to now start texting or whatsapping 086 to 103 103 we'll leave it open for about 10 minutes and then we will select our winner and our winner today will receive as hot off the press as one of the first of the Christy Moore Live at the Marquee tickets for 2023 so here's the song again there's a Dutchman playing the mandolin a German looking for a limo Flynn and there's and if you keep singing along you'll eventually get to what the name of the song is because I think a lot of Christy Moore songs it's like right on uh, yesterday I had to sing along in my head to work out what was the name of the song we know so many of the Christy Moore tracks he's actually has has released 30 solo albums it's he really is incredible and he is such a legendary singer song writer so if you sing it along in your head you'll be able to work out the name of that track okay so get texting or whatsapping no calls please just text or whatsapp 0862 103 103 and while I am awaiting today's winner 
Let me take a look at some of your texts and comments that have been coming into the programme all uh, morning. A number of people actually uh, texting and WhatsApping to say how much they enjoyed my interview in the last hour with Owen Dalton, a Dublin native who's been living for the last 12 years out on the Beira Peninsula, gave up the rat race of Dublin to move to the wilds of beautiful West uh, Cork and he's rewilding part of his farm and it sounds like he's doing it really, really successfully and what he's trying to bring back is the old rainforest that once existed in Beira. He's trying to bring part of that back on his land. I was fascinated. I really was fascinated uh, by my chat with him and yesterday, because I was completely unaware of this rainforest that had existed in Beira when I was reading up on it yesterday evening. You know, I, when you start to read into something and you kind of go down what I call a rabbit hole and an hour later I was still reading things about Owen and the work that he's doing. It, it really is fascinating. Uh, his book sounds um, a, a brilliant, brilliant read and of course he has that online seminar tonight so a lot of people just just saying well done to Owen, D- Owen Dalton and the work that he's doing. One person bemoans the fact that we have too many large farms that we need, need to go back to the day when we had small farmers small family run farms where part of the land could be left then to rewild and to do the kind of work that Owen is doing and that's what is missing. So thank you uh, to the people who took time out to comment on Owen's interview in the last hour. Hi Patricia. I missed the answer to a question that came in yesterday. You had a listener who contacted you who was just lucky enough to have been given a council house and she was wondering about help with furniture to furnish the council house. I missed the answer. What was the answer to that query? Okay, that query came in. I can't remember the lady's name. She's, as this texter said, very lucky that she has been allocated a council house. But for the last, I don't know how many years, she's been living in rented accommodation and living in rented accommodation in this country, of course, traditionally comes with all of the furniture included. So now she goes from a fully furnished rented house to a council house and she's no furniture and she was wondering was there any help with it. A number of people pointed out that she could go to the community welfare officer and you apply under the additional needs payment or the exceptional needs payment. There's two actual payments. They kind of both do the same thing. I mean, for example, under the additional needs uh, payment, they give it's for an expense that you cannot pay from your weekly income. And obviously this woman is, is moving uh, from rented accommodation into this unfurnished house and she can't, you know, doesn't have the money to be able to fully furnish the house. And under the additional needs uh, payments, they talk about things like furniture, but they talk about things like you can apply for money for bedding and cooking utensils if you're setting up home for the first time. So I'm assuming it's going to be the additional needs uh, payments. So you need to contact your local community welfare officer. Now, the last time we did, we know there's a huge increase because of the cost of living because of the cost of living crisis a lot of people are finding them in situations where they haven't got money for their electricity bill they don't have money to put maybe oil into their heating to get home heating oil a cooker breaks down they don't have money for a new cooker so we know that there's a lot of people because the government are encouraging people who are on low income or people who live solely on social welfare that if an exceptional or an additional need a payment turns up like that, a cost that you haven't factored in, then you can go to your community welfare officer and apply for either the exceptional needs payment or the additional needs payment. 
but because the government themselves have been telling people uh, to do it and because people are finding themselves on hard times there has been a huge increase in the number of people applying to the community welfare officers and we certainly have been hearing from some of our listeners to say there does seem to be a delay with the payment I think the last time we looked into it it was in many cases it was taking about eight weeks for the payment to come come through because obviously you have to apply for it you have to fill in forms some people were saying that you know they asked for so much information and, and obviously they can't just straight away hand out checks and money to people they need to make sure that it's it's genuine etc i can understand that and then if there's an additional a bigger amount of people coming it's an additional workload i don't know if the community welfare officers are being backed up with additional workers to help them to get through the amount of people that are applying. So that's why I mentioned that to the to the to, to the person who's moving into the house. There may be a delay with getting the payment, but you'll just get working on it as quickly as you can. But if you go to the community welfare office, so that was the answer from yesterday. And thank you. That came in towards the end of the programme. I just didn't get a chance to call it out because so many people had said that that's what they did themselves when they moved into a council house. They went to the community welfare officer and uh, they got the money that they needed to put the furniture into uh, the house. And then somebody else is on wondering about the local property tax and say, hi, Trish, I'm wondering, do you know or does any of your listeners know about the payment of the local property tax for next year? I normally get the letter every year and it's normally around this time. My memory tells me it's normally due around this time. But so far, I've heard nothing. I'm just wondering, did anybody else get the letter in the post from the local property uh, tax? And you are right. It is normally around November that they start sending out the letters. Now, I did. I went on to revenue.ie just to work out when the payment needs to be made. And you don't need to panic yet if you're paying through debit or credit card or you're paying through your local post office then it's the 10th of January of next year is the latest date for paying in full January of next week next year phased payments start uh, that's for people who get the you know the money either taken out weekly or they've set up a PSP at on post or through a pay zone then it's the 15th of January if you're setting up a monthly direct debit payment and then it would be the 15th of every month if you're spreading the local property tax across the year and then for people who have a one-off annual direct debit instruction that you've already sent into uh, revenue they're the last to have to pay That's th- that won't go out of your accounts until the 21st of March so I don't know if the letters have gone out yet I know last year letters went out and people had to reassess as to what band your house was in and that caused a bit of consternation last year because people got the letters and just put the letter aside thinking oh that's the letter for payment and then we started talking about it on the radio and I lost count of the number of people who contacted us to say that they thought the letter was just for the payment and they put it aside and then when they opened it they realised that they had to actually contact revenue themselves that's not going to happen this year because hopefully everybody last year did their own self-assessment on how much their property was worth. So can just can anybody let us know if you've already received your local property tax reminder that it's due to be paid uh, or if not when you get one in will you let me know so that I can let other listeners know that those letters are on the way. We spoke earlier about the money the additional money that has been given to the horse racing uh, industry and this is the public funds that has gone to horse racing the prizes 42 million last year but we were talking about the fact that 70 million had gone to uh, horse racing Ireland 
but yet the government defend it because they say you know that nearly two billion comes back every year from the industry back into the economy but what i think people over the weekend were aggrieved by it because the top four winners were the likes of jp mcmanus michael o'leary john magner and people were saying you know why should they be getting taxpayers money by way of prize funds and it's tax free to them when i mentioned that somebody wants to point out patricia please give credit where credit is due to the likes of jp mcmanus he is a hugely hugely generous man and he has been particularly generous uh, to with money and he gives to lots of good causes and he certainly does in that area of uh, limerick and parts of north cork and listen i can put my hand up and say i know only too well the generosity of J.P. McManus because Marcia goes has her service with the St. Joseph's Foundation in Charleville and St. Joseph's Foundation in Charleville I was a board member at one stage and we countless times over the years not countless times but a number of times over the years a big big chunk of funding came from the J.P. McManus Fund it's through that Pro-Am Golf Tournament that they, they do and there's lots of areas of Limerick and as I say it's parts of North North Cork as well every area would love to have a J.P. McManus living in their area because he is very very generous so credit where credit is due and I'm glad to to give that a mention thank you for pointing that out and I, I suppose I should have said it at the time 0818 103 103 uh, we touched on asylum seekers and we touched on the Ukrainian refugees earlier on in the programme where we were talking about the amount of hotel beds that are now lost to the tourist industry and of some tourist towns in particular are really starting to worry about what their tourist trade is going to look like going forward if more and more hotels are converted into either asylum centres or are converted into housing for Ukrainian refugees. People are starting in the tourist sector are certainly starting to worry about it. That has led Jay uh, to say, unfortunately, Patricia, I think in this country we need to close the door. It is slowly breaking uh, the country and that's, we know from the government they're, they're certainly for the Ukrainian refugees where that horrible, horrible war uh, is going on. That's not going to happen, but we need to have some kind of a plan in place if the Ukrainian refugees still are arriving as to how we're going to house them and look after them until the war is over. Of course, what we most need is for that war to end so that people can go home because that's what war refugees do. They'll stay in the country to keep them safe and then they will go home again. And my big concern is as we're heading into the winter months, the winters in Ukraine are really, really severe, much more severe than anything we have seen. I certainly got a glimpse of it on my many trips to Belarus, which obviously borders uh, Ukraine. I mean, you can have temperatures. I remember being in uh, Belarus in January, I'm sure it was, and the temperatures were down. I think they were they were certainly o- below minus 20. It was absolutely bitter. And of course, we know now that Putin, they're targeting infrastructure, energy infrastructure. They're trying to freeze people to death. They're trying to stop the Ukrainians by doing it that way, by you know knocking off their water, knocking off their electricity, knocking off their gas. And that's going to cause a lot more people I think to flee uh, Ukraine and that's going to be a great great worry not just for us we're not the only country in the world and certainly not the only country in Europe taking uh, refugees but I think it is going to lead to more coming to our shores and we're not we're not coping as it is in this country with our own homeless when we've only when we've over, over 10,000 of our own Irish people living in emergency accommodation so hopefully the powers that be are working on something that we are unaware of and they're trying to get to the bottom of it and they're, they're trying to uh, 
get a solution to it. 0818103103. We'll get our winner soon. Will we close off the uh, we'll close off the texts, please, on the Christy Moore competition because um, I need John Paul to select our winner for today so that we can announce who's going to get the pair of tickets to uh, Christy Moore live at the Marquis and he's an efficient man I'll tell you that Yvonne Carney Ramblers Retreat Old Blarney Road in Cork There's a Dutchman playing the mandolin a German looking for Limo Flynn and there's was able to tell me that that's the wonderful Listoon Varna well done Yvonne Carney Lower Killeen's Old Blarney Road in Cork Get yourself ready, Yvonne. Well, you have plenty of time to get organised, but you now know what you're doing on Saturday, the 17th of June next year. You're going to be heading off to see Christy Moore live at the Marquee. For all the other Christy Moore fans listening, more of the tickets to give away tomorrow, again on Thursday and again on Friday, with a reminder that you can buy tickets for Christy Moore live at the Marquee this Thursday morning at 9am through Ticketmaster.ie The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at CorkCoco.ie The Pike Theatre Group in Balancholic they're holding their monthly script it is on this evening in Balancholic Rugby Club Tanner Park at half past eight they will have a choice from Westgate Foundation performing on the night the usual cuppa sandwiches music song and maybe even a dance and some stories a raffle will also be held tonight Bingo in Shambhalimore Community Centre this evening eight o'clock jackpot there €3,100 and a DVD of Clan Bannon's journey through the War of Independence is now available this will make an ideal present the cost is €20 and it's available by contacting Charlie on 0868403914 Ballyfehan fun afternoon of wellness music poetry and song will be held tomorrow afternoon from 2pm lots of free activities and all are uh, welcome and Shambhali Moore golden hour social morning that continues every Wednesday morning including tomorrow morning between half 10 and half 11 you're invited to come along a warm cuppa and a chat Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie last year a group in Charleville decided to embark on a project whereby local people would share stories of their everyday lives growing up in the area and all the stories were video recorded so that they can be shared and would then form part of a record for future generations. All the material goes live this week online and to chat about it I'm joined in studio by Pat O'Hara who's a well-known videographer in the area and Patrick Foley who's an administrator with Charleville Cove's Home and Away Facebook page. Good afternoon to you both gentlemen and and you're welcome. Uh, Podrick, uh, Podrick, I better start with you. Um, tell me a bit about the Facebook page, because that's really where all this came out of. Yeah. Um, well, a local man, John Lambert, uh, living in America since the middle 80s. We actually lived together ourselves in, in, in New York back in the 80s. He's still living down in Arkansas. And, you know, I was looking for the local news, what was happening, whether, you know, sports results or who died or, you know, anything going on Birth, around the birth, town. Births, deaths and marriages. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So... Um, he came up with the idea, well, why don't we get a Facebook page, not just for local Charleville people, but people that have moved away, um, you know, families that have might have moved away, that might have lost direct connection with the town, but still are interested in what's going on. So 
that was the idea, you know, just we'll say coves, you know, they, we used the, the, the expression coves in Charleville quite a lot. How's it going, cove? How are things, cove? So that's I kind was, of... I <laughs> was wondering where yeah, that yeah, came yeah. from. That's, that's it, you know, it's like... explain that. Yeah, yeah, so th- that's it. How's it going, cove, you know? So that's where the name came from. So it started seven years ago, and again, it, ten, it took a, a couple of years, I suppose, for... The word of mouth to spread, what the, what the page was about, you know. Um, we, we keep it very close-knit, you know. We only uh, admit people that have genuine connection to the town, you know, okay. so that we don't get people from outside yeah. that might be spreading the wrong message, you know. So we, we vet um, members into the into the page, and we also then vet every post that goes through so that it's um, nothing offensive or, you know, yeah. that might be um, put on. So... That's kind of where it started from. And a, and, and a lot of other areas and towns have successfully done that. Yeah. But you guys have decided to take the step further with this project. Yeah. Um, because during COVID, then, you know, and everybody was locked down and we started, you know, putting out a message to people, asking them, you know, maybe you might have something at home you'd like to share with people. So pictures and memories and, you know, old characters from around the town started popping up and, and it just brought back, again, so many memories for everybody and stories and I remember and you remember and, and when some of the pictures that came up were just fantastic because, again, everybody's got boxes of pictures at home. Yeah. Old you know, black and white photographs. Old black and white pictures yeah. and I have them and you have them but no one else was seeing them. So Because yeah. they're, they, they're in that biscuit tin under in the, the bed. Yeah. Exactly. They're in the old photo album or the biscuit tin and then so people started putting them up, just taking a picture, posting them. But then what was happening was I was seeing a picture you posted but my grandparents could have been in it and I've yeah. never seen it. Yeah. And I was posting and you've seen pictures that you've never seen in your parents or grandparents or aunts. Or, so it was just fascinating. Um, and, I, and I love when I see old photographs like that go up and an argument then will usually ensue as to who's second on the left in the back row and somebody will <laughs> go, that's Johnny's. No, that's not Johnny. That's got to be his brother, Paddy. And what's also lovely is you can see family resemblances. That's right. You, you know, you'll see somebody post... That's got to be your dad. It's the head off you. That's Should, right. Yeah, that's and I, right. I, I think that's lovely. Is, so yeah. you went from there to deciding to start recording. Yeah. So, uh, again, we were just kind of trying to push the idea a bit further. And we're going, this, this is brilliant. You know, all these old pictures, now they're saved for posterity. Um, you know, and this is fantastic. Now they're digitally saved. And we started thinking, well... How about maybe we'll do some interviews? And Pat, you know, was talking. Now that's Pat. Pat yeah. This is where your expertise came into it. Yeah. See, they were on the road doing um, a drive through a child for maybe eight or ten minutes at that time. So, kind of, um, I said to myself, we knock it on the shoulder and throw it, throw it out. And I contacted Party and Matt and a few more. No, we do a few interviews around the town, and we gathered um, a committee of six. Okay. And. Um, we met and a couple of times we met and then we started thinking of areas where we would video and the, the, the rest of the lads, we put a program together where we go out and talk to people and would they be interested in going on the videos and we, we didn't have not one no. And th- well, this was during lockdown, was This it? was during lockdown, but <laughs> a lot of it was done out in the open. So yeah, yeah. outside the houses, out in the greens. Yeah, and everything we, was done socially yeah. distanced. But we didn't um, put pressure on anybody. And in fairness, there was mornings we were turning up and they were all done up and everything. Go away. <laughs> I couldn't believe so, it. Yeah. So you turned up with your camera, yeah. tripod and what? Just sort of... Well, party on Matt and O'Connor was the other um, uh, interviewer and give the boys the mic and they'd talk to yeah. the people. And, and just, um, just let it roll. Let roll. it roll. Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd never done anything like this before. Martin would have done a bit for the St. Patrick's Day Parade. He'd, you know, Martin would be doing a bit of social commentary uh, as the parade would be passing and stuff. But we'd never done anything like this. And so, and that's exactly how we... How we rolled with it. We just went, 
Patricia, do you want to be on the camera and we'll talk to you about yeah. Yeah. your family, your life, where you grew up and the neighbourhood. And everybody just went, yeah. And uh, again, we always gave people the, the option. Do you want to go back? Do you want to start again? And it was just two people chatting, yeah, having a conversation about their life, about their family, about their, you know, history in Charleville. And, and what, what, what sort of stories did they share with you? It was where the family, not all families would be from, Charleville or Mallow yeah. or wherever you're from. So their family came from here, what brought them here, where the, the mother came from, the father came from, uh, what they did uh, when they were young, you know, like the ch- jobs that the, the parents might have had. Um, and then it was their growing up and their school experiences and their... And it, that's just the way it was. It was it's, just a it, conversation. Yeah, it, it sounds like Alice Taylor's uh, to school through the fields. Right. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. told in video format. It's it told is, in yeah, video yeah, format. Yeah. And yeah. that was uh, the, the whole idea, you know. And like there was an old video done with a, a very great character around town years ago, Mixie Tool, and he's plucking a turkey. That's what he did for a living. He'd, he'd pluck turkeys and stuff for bedding. And, and Michael McGrath did a, a very short interview with him. But it's just told the story. There was an image um, with Mixie and Michael talking, just having it chat and yeah. this was just the same type of an experience yeah, it was yeah, not, yeah. nothing was pre-rehearsed there was no questions handed out beforehand yeah we just so that's where it comes across then so so natural yeah. Yeah. and uh, pat how many people did you videotape how many hours did you do there's nine there's nearly 10 hours in whoa, total whoa yeah yeah we yeah. have we have uh, we have an unhealed copy as well on there's four dvds this one two and three and four and then there's a version of it on usb for wow. digital format. Yeah. So did you have to do a lot of editing? Oh, or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pile of editing. But look, it took a bit of time and I got there and fin- give ourselves, we give ourselves plenty of time before we, the, like the 10th of November is more or less our launch even for it. I've launched okay. it. It is out there now. Yeah. Do you know? And, and and did you find that people, when word got out what you were doing, were people coming looking to take part? Well, anybody that the lads spoke to, None of them said no. They yeah. said, "Give us a time and a date, and if the weather was bad during COVID, we we cancelled it and revisited it." Yeah, yeah. And you it was know? in people's gardens, was it? Gardens. Yeah. Could, we we did the clubs, the, the couple of clubs we did. Main Street. Yeah. On the Main Street, down the lane, mill, you had Smith's Road. Um, just lately, there was two houses demolished in Smith's Road, and those houses are on it. Ah. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. We we tried to catch people. Yeah. In their neighbourhood, and that's we yeah. and so Pat in on his video as well. We talked to the people in their neighbourhood, and what was amazing to all of us involved, I suppose, as well, was how proud people were of their neighbourhood. You know, and the respect they had for their neighbours and growing up there, and the memories. And yeah. so we wanted to capture the neighbourhoods, the people there in their neighbourhood, um, which I think it comes across very well. You know, and um, then we drive around, and, and I suppose that'll just bring me to. So there was Pat and myself and then Michelle Crowley, you know, took some fabulous pictures while we were there. Still pictures yeah. of everybody um, with Anne-Marie Leahy was involved in the logistics side of it. Where are we going? Who are we talking to next? Martin O'Connor, of course. And I want to wish Martin a speedy recovery. He's a bit of an accident lately. Um, Martin was doing the interviews with us as well. And his brother Seamus then helped with the, the transport. You know, Pat would go on the back with the trailer and drive around the, the estates, the neighbourhoods to, to capture everything mm. as we were there, you know. So, uh, you know, it was just a, a great team effort to by all it, of us. Yeah. And, you know, it was all voluntary. You know, we all had great fun doing it. 
And I suppose well done. it's well done. Yeah, and, and, and I imagine you po- possibly spoke to people who had been born and raised in that neighbourhood, and uh, and maybe their parents before them. Absolutely, yeah, you know, yeah, they'd yeah. taken over, um, taken over the house from them. You know, they, yeah. like one area in particular that comes to mind, Harrison's Place. They were mm-hmm. built for the boys coming back after World War One. You know, and so they were so houses for the soldiers, and their sons uh, went into them, and their sons or daughters are now in them. So they've been, you know, they've been there a hundred. 10, 20 years now, you know, yeah, so, yeah. and th- that'll just, I suppose, tell you how much pride they th- have in the neighbourhood, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and I just, I love the idea, I mean, for the diaspora abroad. Yes. Yeah. Are going to absolutely yeah, yeah. devour the, yeah, the, yeah, these videos. Yeah, videos. yeah, um, be- because again, it doesn't take too long. I mean, I suppose we all think we're in, grown in an area, but I mean, families change and, you know, people die. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And. Um, you know, and people move away and someone moves away for a job and then, you know, they set up shop someplace else. And but they still have that connection. And the, the page in this video, I suppose, is going to help to keep people connected back mm-hmm. to the yeah. town and and, you know, and help them be a part of the yeah. community that yeah. they were so. And for the future generations, yes. uh, it's yes. a social and history record that you're leaving behind. Unfortunately, we missed out on a few people during COVID okay. because we couldn't get there and some, some of them passed away in films like uh, that we no. weren't able to do. Yeah, And the last recording was, would be honest, is St. Patrick's Day Parade in Chal this year. That's yeah. the last recording. We finished it at yeah. that, at that ah, time. Yeah, that was you know? good. Yeah, that was yeah. good. So it goes, I know, I know, Pat, you, for people who would like hard copies, uh, you're selling them. Um, They're on DVD on a USB stick. Okay, and where can people get those? They can ring me for the... Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. and then they, it's going online, though. Yeah, we were, again, just because of costs, you know, because mm-hmm. the file is so big and USB <coughs> sticks to, to, to cater for that amount yeah. of file, they're expensive. And, you know, like the four-disc DVD set, just to cover the costs, yeah. There had to be a charge for that version of it. Yeah. So we were trying to make it as, as accessible for everybody, you know. So um, Nesson Cavanagh, uh, who helped with the the IT side of it, um, so he's going to upload all of this material onto uh, Charleville Cove's YouTube channel because it's too big for Facebook. Okay. Um, so all of this has been uploaded, so it's all going to go live. So and the fact it goes on YouTube, that means people who are not part of the Facebook group are able to see it. Are able I to see it as well. I yes, really yes. think it's important yes. for everybody to yes. see it. And yes. it's the 10th. It's this, is it this? It's Thursday. This, this Thursday. Thursday. This okay. Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you having a bit of an uh, official hoolie mm. for it? Or anything? Yeah. Well, no. We're, 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 yeah, no, we're not no, officially. Not. <laughs> yeah, at, the, yeah. at the moment, not. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. We're, we're hoping to have um, extended the travel Xmas fair okay. in the hotel on the fourth of December. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and that's anybody, where that's, that's where, where your, yeah. your DVDs yeah, yeah, are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just uh, just before we go, can I just mention that one of the the, the ladies that we did oh, interview yeah. just recently, uh, Miss Doreen Sheehan, she just passed away on Sunday morning, ah. and we have a beautiful interview with mm. her, um, taken and she's talking about all her family and. Oh, let's so I just want to offer condolences to yeah, the Lynch condolences uh, family. to them. Yeah. But what a beautiful thing yeah, for yeah, that family yeah, to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And listen, we're 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 all going that way eventually. Yeah, yeah. In years to come, for family members who are, t- you know, they'll go, "Oh God, Dad yeah, and Mum was yeah, on the yeah, video." Yeah, yeah, listen, yeah. it's it's terrific. And w- would you like to see others? Other areas yeah, follow, I mean, follow d- suit, Paul. Yeah, uh, we don't have uh, <laughs> claim to this. It's just yeah. an idea, and I think every neighbourhood should do it. You know, again, like we did a lot of work on it in smaller places. You don't need to go as big as probably what we were, but I mean, just talk to the local people. You know, get some stories down because the history goes, and yeah. you know, as older people get older, the memory isn't as sharp as it used to be, and even. For my own family history, you're trying to remember who that was yeah. or who they were, and 
the help isn't there that it might have been 30 years ago so and and I love I love the idea that when you approached people everybody was everybody was so willing to talk that's right that's right yeah Yeah, yeah. which is great it's like having a microphone stuck in your face and a camera on you is daunting, can be a you bit know. intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but people, people were brilliant. And well, like, congratulations, thank everybody for doing it. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah. I think if you've you've really hit on something, I think it's going to be a hugely, hugely successful. And I really do hope that other parishes and villages and towns and areas uh, follow suit and just just get it down there on record for the future generations. But uh, Podrick Foley from Charleville Cove's Home and Away Facebook page, and uh, Pat O'Hara, who is responsible for all the videos. Thanks a million uh, for joining. Us in studio. Good afternoon. Thank you. Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Court today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 103 And thank you, by the way, to a huge, huge number of people who contacted us to say those letters reminding people that your local property tax is due are already in the post. A number of people have received them over the last week. Somebody reckons they're being sent out in alphabetical order according to your surname. The sister says, I've just received my uh, property tax reminder. Mary said she got hers last week. Lots of different days, people saying, and somebody said, literally, the postman just arrived and my local property tax has arrived. Tony says, I got the letter uh, this morning. It's payable on or before the 1st of January and it must be paid in full by the 10th of January. That's if you haven't set up a direct debit. And Jim says, I got my letter last Friday for my property tax. I feel it is an unfair tax. After taking out a mortgage to build my own home and all the stress that went with it and now you have to pay for the privilege of living in your own home after everything the government has uh, taken already uh, including that on all of the building materials says Jim yeah uh, listen Jim I've heard I don't think anyone will ever be happy with paying tax but I think the local property tax in particular does seem to annoy, annoy a lot of uh, people so just to let the listener who is waiting on the local property tax those the letters are in the post but as I say they don't need to be paid immediately some people like to as soon as they get a bill in the people who are very organised and put a little bit away every week or every month so when the bill comes in the money is there you know the, the letters are coming out to remind people now 0818 Let me look at some of your texts and calls that were coming in to the programme this morning. John uh, O'Donovan from the city was on and this is kind of tied in with me talking about cancer diagnosis being missed, particularly in poor for for people living in lower income families and in particular they're getting they're not getting diagnosed in time and in many cases they're turning up at an A&E department and it's literally too late they're they're already well progressed uh, with their cancer and unfortunately they didn't go in time to get an early diagnosis and it's this report out showing a huge variety of reasons as to why that is happening so John was listening to me talk about that you know, and and he's tying it in with the fact that Michal Martin, our Taoiseach, is in Charmel Sheikh for the COP27 that's on at the moment. And yesterday, Michal Martin uh, c- pledged 10 million euro from 
Ireland, from Irish taxpayers to developing countries at COP27 while our health service is in crisis. And Patricia, you're talking about mis- missed cancer diagnosis. Why is a small country like Ireland giving such a huge amount of money to COP27? And at the end of the day, it's taxpayers' uh, money. OK, what you are talking about is the... It was 10 million that Micheál Martin... Now, that's... 10 million is a small percentage of how much we give to the developing world but the money that was given yesterday or was announced by the Taoiseach that is to do with funding under what's called the Global Shield Initiative and it's a finance protection programme targeted at countries under threat from the climate crisis. Now we Micheál Martin wouldn't be the only person putting the 10 million in but that's how much he's saying must be given particularly to countries that have suffered huge loss and damage. Pakistan I know is one of the countries that they're particularly talking about at uh, COP and there are countries uh, particularly around the Horn of Africa you look at the catastrophic drought that's going on around the the Horn of Africa others have had devastating floods it's all been proven that it's climate change but in many cases the countries that have been affected most by climate change change were not the countries that caused it and because of that the richer countries must step forward and uh, give to help those countries and that's where that Global Shield initiative comes from and Micheál Martin yes John is right committed 10 million yesterday John not happy with that 0818 103 103 I mentioned a scam yesterday one of our listeners I was still thinking about Pat yesterday evening when I went home we got a, a, a text in and we did reach out to Pat to see did Pat want to talk to us but literally Pat said too upset got that text what was purporting to be a text message from the HSE to say Pat had been in close contact of COVID-19 and the Pat needed to apply for a antigen tests that the HSE would provide free of charge and click on a link and when you click on the link they then asked Pat for bank details so that the delivery charge for the antigen tests could be covered and of course there's no such thing when the when the HSE were sending out antigen tests. They never charged for delivery the antigen tests and the cost of posting them was all free. But Pat wasn't aware of that. Pat filled in the bank details and then €2,000 gone from Pat's bank account. And Pat contacted us to say, let please let people know. And and we mentioned it again uh, yesterday. And someone is on from West Cork saying, I listened to that uh, yesterday. And I also recently got one of those covid alerts purporting to be from the HSE but I don't know what type of phone this listener has but this listener says I was straight away able to detect that it was a scam because my phone detected it as a scam text. You really do need to make people aware there are so many scams doing the rounds at the moment. People need to be so careful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this has come in from Councillor Declan Hurley in Dunmanway was listening to me talking to Cara Spratt who was the organiser of that protest at the Cork University Maternity Hospital on Sunday. And this is to do with guidelines that the HSC are talking about. It's a recommendation, not just here in Cork, but it's going to be nationwide, that if you want to have a home birth or if any family wants to have a home birth, they have to be within 30 minutes of by ambulance to the local maternity hospital. And of course, that's going to include, that's going to exclude vast amount of people who live in West Cork because as soon as you go probably beyond Bandon, 
heading towards Clonakilty, you're going to be more than 30 minutes away from the Cork University Maternity Hospital, which is our only maternity hospital uh, here in Cork. So it's going to exclude people who genuinely want home births and it's taking that choice away from them. Declan says, Patricia, can I thank and congratulate Cara for organising what was a very, very successful protest last Sunday. Myself and my wife Catherine had a home birth because it was our preferred option. Our son was born at home at the height of COVID and I had the pleasure of delivering him into my arms. We felt safe, we felt confident all throughout the birth as we went through a rigorous assessment before we were approved to have a home birth. As parents, we are totally against the HSE's proposal as guess what? It discriminates against women to have the choice of the home birth. Kind regards, uh, Declan Hurley and Domanway. Yeah, and that's what I feel is so unfair about it. It's taking that choice away from mothers to be, but also from the dads to be and the families who like the idea of a home birth. Thank you for that, uh, Declan. And hi, Patricia, when you were talking about McCroom and the bypass and great news for the town of McCroom and anyone who travels anywhere close by McCroom, I just want to know, are the council planning on doing anything on fixing the potholes that that I experience every day driving in McCroom? Also, two mile bridge outside the town. There are some really bad potholes in the McCroom area that need to be dealt with. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.